very, very good friend, Didi Delgado, has a, a quote on on one of her pieces. And the quote is about how like white women come to anti-racism work as if they're complaining to the manager at Whole Foods. It's like, you know, for a lot of white women, and I'm not, I'm not judging, for a lot of white women, it's like we just woke up one day and realized that racism was a thing. Um, and so we're like, oh, how has that been allowed to continue? Who do I, who do I speak to about this? Where do I send my complaint, you know, or my $20 or whatever it is so that the racism will stop? <laughs> that was Aaron Brooke. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 111. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad you're joining me today. This episode is part of season 13, which to be honest, feels totally wild. (laughs) Have we really made 13 full seasons? Apparently, yes. Yes, we have. And with each new season, I'm more in awe and more grateful than ever for the way that my guests are willing to show up and to be real about their messy, imperfect lives. I'm also super grateful for you, for listening, for taking two minutes to leave an iTunes review. Seriously, this is such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. And of course, I'm grateful for those of you who support and fund the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, and in 2018, you can look forward to five new seasons. That's the plan, five full new seasons in 2018, and they will be more honest than ever before. I would also love the chance in 2018 to meet you in person. Um, My hope is to do 10 small, intimate, and fun Real Talk Live events. I did the first two um, in August and September of 2017 in London and in Portland, and I am hopefully heading to Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, D.C., and more, and you can find details and grab a ticket at NicoleAntoinette.com slash events if you are interested in doing this Real Talk thing in person and becoming friends in real life. That would be so much fun. In the meantime, I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but in case you're new to the show, I wanted to first take a second and just quickly explain what we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are committed really to just one simple, powerful thing, and that's telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one has a magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything at all. I am a recovering self-help addict. That's my sort of like joking but not so joking (laughs) description of myself, and I'm so over that approach, and I bet that you are too. That's probably why you're here. So that kind of thing is not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, race racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and just about everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects and, warning, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. (laughs) So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. 
The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You might have heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, that's a vote. You're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. And when you support this show, you're just saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic at all should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for more real talk live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Erin Brooke. Erin is a writer, educator, and feminist who studies media, people, culture, and storytelling. She's the creator of NiceWhiteLadies.com, a training zone for folks who are new to racial justice work and need a little guidance and emotional support. In this episode, Erin talks about her experience doing anti-racism work and shares why nice white ladies like her need to get involved in the fight to end systemic racism. She tells us about mistakes she's made along the way, provides resources for you to check out, and so much more in this wonderfully imperfect and honest conversation. In addition, Erin also shares personal stories from the many years that she spent as an actress, and we dig into the starving artist stereotype and how that impacted her. She also shares what it's like to have ADHD and clears up some common misconceptions about that diagnosis. So as you can tell, this is a wide ranging conversation that covers lots of different topics. It was such a delight for me to learn from Erin, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Erin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Talk me through a typical day in your life. What's your life like? (laughs) Um, So uh, I usually wake up and uh, take my medication um, because I have ADHD and I called with my princess pills. Um, So I wake up like a Disney princess about 45 minutes after that. Um, and then, uh, I usually go right on my phone. I'm really, really bad with the whole like morning routine thing. I'm usually on my phone while in bed for a little while. And then, uh, eventually I get too hungry and I get up. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love that. I have recently slipped back into the being on my phone in bed. And I mean, inherently, I guess there's nothing wrong with it, but I know that I don't have as good of a day when I do that. And it's so funny how you fall back into the habits that don't make you feel great. And then you do them anyway. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably, that's me. I'm just like a big collection of bad habits. Oh man, I hear you. Okay. So you get too hungry, you get up. What do you have for breakfast? Uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a grown up breakfast. I really don't. I have Eggos. (laughs) 
I love it. Uh, any specific kind? They make so many kinds of Eggos now. I like original Eggos. Maybe like once in a blue moon, the chocolate chip ones for, for a special treat. But uh, yeah, just original Eggos with um, like maple syrup, ideally, because I'm Canadian. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's that's my breakfast usually. Okay. And then what? Coffee, always. Uh, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not a good person without coffee. Um, and it just tastes good, you know? <laughs> and then I'm, uh, I'm on the internet. Uh, if I've, I've probably been on the internet the whole time, if I'm being honest, uh, <laughs> through my phone. Uh, but yeah, then I'm on the internet doing, doing work, either, uh, either writing or, uh, it, talking to people or yeah, just get in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. Sounds similar to my day minus that I'm not a coffee drinker, but I drink tea, which I, I have my tea right here with me. <laughs> I like, I feel like at this point I can't record without having a hot thing of tea with me. That's good. You need the little rituals. I know. Yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree. Yeah, I have a whole, <laughs> I am actually very ritualistic about recording the podcast. I have like the certain like checklist of things that I make sure this is working and this is working and this is where the paper goes and the pen goes. And that's it's funny that because it's audio only, obviously, you know that because we're just talking and I, I don't do video partially because the connection winds up oftentimes being better with Skype without the video on. But also I'm just like so weird and I have all my things everywhere that I feel like I would never make eye contact with someone as talking to them. And <laughs> it would be a strange conversation. I appreciate the no video. I, I would have felt like I had to clean before this and, uh, and that probably wasn't going to happen. So cleaning, showering, <laughs> it's all overrated, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if you want to work in your PJs, why not? Yeah. I'm definitely wearing basically pajamas right now. My, my thing is it can't be the things that I slept in. Like it has to be like clean, different yoga pants. <laughs> like, di- like as long as I change clothes, that's all I needed. They don't have to be real clothes. <laughs> that sounds like a good rule. I, <laughs> I, I wish I could say the same, but uh, yeah, these are, I'm currently wearing the pajamas I slept in. Um, I love it. Real talk. <laughs> Honesty. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so this might seem like a really strange question, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and just thought mm-hmm. it might be an interesting place to start. So I've been thinking about sort of looking back on my past and sort of the, the couple of fork in the road moments where I feel like if at that time I would have made a different choice that my entire, that I'd be living in a, like a totally different life basically. And I'm sure that that could be true at many different points along the way. But for you, if you had to look back, is there something that sticks out in your mind as a turning point where if you'd made a different choice that you'd be living a different life? Oh, wow. Um, I feel like that. Yeah, you're right. That totally applies to so many different moments. Um, I, I think the, the single, the biggest one for me would be that I, uh, I ran away from home when I was 16. Oh, see, I didn't realize this was a good question to ask. Cause now I'm very interested. Tell me more about that. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm 30 now. So there's, there's a bit more, you know, perspective sure. <laughs> on it. Um, but at the time I was living with my aunt and I, um, had, not developed very good communication skills around my feelings or wants or needs. And we uh, had an argument and I just got in my car and left. Um, And uh, I 
uh, I went to a friend's house. Um, like we were just barely friends and he said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to a party tonight if you want to come with me. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, and then he kept checking in with me and he asked me, well, we were at the party, like, are you ready to go back? And I was like, no, I'm not ready. And, uh, so someone else made friends with me at that party and a bunch of us went and stayed at his house. And, uh, the next morning we all, uh, hiked up uh, to the Ridge cause they were, they were all smokers. And so they wanted to go smoke where their parents couldn't see them. Um, and I just kind of watched the sun come up over the ocean and there's like, and the mist was rolling back off the trees and the water. And it was like the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen. Um, and all I could think was that if I hadn't, uh, if I hadn't left, I would never have seen that. And how many, how many things was I not seeing or not doing because I, um, wasn't making decisions for myself. Hmm. Did you wind up going back home? Um, so I was very, very conflict avoidant. Uh, and once I, once I heard that the police were looking for me, I, um, I hid more. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I did end up going back home a couple days later to pick up some things. Um, and, uh, and then I left for good. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I definitely see how that would be a turning point, a big turning point mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. So what did you do after that when you left for good? Then what? I um, ended up uh, staying with a, a friend who I had met at that party for a couple months. And uh, and then, you know, some, some different things. I was like talking to my parents and kind of uh, reconciling that. And so they, they helped me find an apartment. And eventually I uh, got a boyfriend and moved in with him and broke up with him and then went back to stay with my friend while I finished up, uh, grade 12. And then, uh, and then I was, you know, 17 and graduated and I went and got an apartment and just started adulting. Yeah. Started adulting. What were you doing for work? Um, at the time I was working in a grocery store in like the, the, deli section but not the not the cold meat section the like fried chicken section and <laughs> and the the writing happy birthday on cakes <laughs> fried chicken and writing happy birthday on cakes that that is an intersection of skills <laughs> it was a small grocery store so you had to kind of you know multitask a little but that yeah fried chicken was the deal <laughs> so 16 17 years old I don't know if you can like put yourself back in that headspace, but you said you're 30 now. What are a few of the expectations that you had when you were that age for who you'd be at this age? Maybe that have been right or wrong or like what did you like when you thought of 30, what did you think? Oh god, like like 30-year-olds have their life together, yeah. you know? They've got they've got houses and um retirement plans and they're married and like, uh, I had no idea where they might uh, schedule all of that stuff, but it seemed like they, they always showed up places on time and, um, just 
knew about the world yeah, and, and that they, they understood taxes and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I also had this, this feeling that like they had run out of, uh, important or interesting things to say. And that was why they, you know, talked so excitedly about things like kitchen knives. Um, because, you know, they were just, they were just bored of like all of the, you know, really deep and interesting philosophy conversations that I was having as a 17 year old. Um, I didn't realize that 30 year olds are actually genuinely excited about kitchen knives and, <laughs> and, you know, decorating and stuff. I thought yeah. that was a, a thing that they did out of, of boredom. <laughs> I, speaking of like random earlier jobs, I used to work at William Sonoma. Um, and I always found myself like being assigned to work in the knife section, <laughs> like sell knives like sell really expensive <laughs> knives to rich people. And, uh, <laughs> you know, knives can be pretty exciting. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. It, it took me a few years to realize that, but, um, they can, they, they really can. They good, can. good kitchen knives, like nice towels, you know? Uh, yes. Uh, sheets that don't fall apart. Um. Listen, yeah, that I, I actually have a really strong memory of the first time that I bought not the cheapest sheets from Target. Mm -hmm. Right? Like these funny things of like adulting when you're like, oh, I can actually buy the one step above sheets from that. And that felt like, like a life changing moment. <laughs> yep. So yeah. tell me about your early sort of job career history. Didn't you pursue acting or did I misread that somewhere? I did. I did. I'm, uh, I, I started acting at a very, very young age. I was, uh, nine years old. The first time I was in a professional production and someone, you know, handed me money for doing what was basically the most fun thing in the world. Um, <clears throat> and that really shaped sort of my, my perception of, of, of careers and jobs. Like I was just amazed that, that someone would pay me to act. Um, and so, um, about a year after I, you know, started adulting, I went into theater school and yeah. And then I was, uh, pursuing acting for about 10 years. I'd say it's only very recently that I've, uh, decided it's, it's not for me anymore. And why not? Like what changed your mind? Um, it was a, a bit of a long, uh, it was kind of like a long breakup. Um, you know, if you've ever been in one of those relationships where like you both know that this is ending and you're kind of just um, waiting it out until you're both ready. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what it was for me. I, um, I, I saw acting as, uh, as like storytelling and listening and uh, just like really, really deep empathy work. And, um, unfortunately that it's, it's very rare that those opportunities actually come up. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it is very, very commercial and, yeah. um, being a woman, a lot of it is very physically commercialized. So I, it wore me down. Um, I just years of being parts of a person, um, was not, uh, and, and holding back parts of myself in order to, uh, work in that industry. I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't do it anymore. 
What's something that you learned through acting that you still use? Oh God, every day. Um, I, the, the skills and the skills from acting are just, are phenomenal. I think drama, uh, should be like required learning for all humans. Um, because you really, so there's two things. Uh, the first one is I would say text analysis. Um, like so much of acting is, is looking at a script and, uh, looking at words because that's usually all the information you're given about a character is what they say. Um, and being able to build from there an entire person, um, with all of their motivations and like wants and failures, uh, and fears. Um, and since most of my work is on the internet and it's, you know, reading things that people write and writing things to people, um, that, that ability to look at something that someone writes to me and, and make space for a whole person there is, uh, so crucial. Hmm. That's really interesting. I would have never thought about that, but I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. And the, uh, the second thing is just the, is just the listening. Like, um, a lot of acting when you're working with someone is, is, just really being present with them and available. And, um, and there's this kind of dual relationship where like the character I'm playing and the character you're playing may be in conflict, but the two of us as as actors are working together to tell the story. Um, so there's that, uh, that ability to kind of hold both truths at the same time Mm -hmm. is Right. Yeah. When I think about, I mean, obviously I have no experience in in the world of acting, but just from like a stereotype perspective, when I think about that, one of the first things that I think of is this sort of starving artist stereotype. Like I ate ramen and, you know, slept on the floor and tried to make this happen for five years, 10 years, whatever. And I'm curious on what your real lived experience was pursuing acting when it comes to money. Oh God. Um, Well, I, I had to give up theater very early um, because it, it it was not only was it it's not enough money when you're first starting out. It really isn't. It's it's things like like you know three hundred dollars a week, four hundred dollars a week. Um, but and so, but the worst part of it is that contracts are usually so short. So it's like three hundred dollars a week for six weeks. And if you're working your, you know, coffee shop or server job at the time, uh, like taking six weeks off is very rarely an option. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time you're giving up work and income in order to go do that one show or that one thing that you love. Um, and it just, it becomes, it, it, it starts to weigh on you, you know, event like there's, there's always a limit on the credit card. (laughs) Uh, and if, and that's how you get by, um, commercials were much more lucrative. It's like, uh, like, like a thousand dollars for a day of work. Um, so I kind of stayed in that realm for a little while. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that, uh, the commercials are also where the, that, um, being parts of a person thing comes in a lot. So did you constantly feel stressed out about money? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. All the time. Um, and, and like part of that might've been also me buying into the starving artist thing. Um, Ooh, okay. Say more about that. So there's like this feeling that you, that you get as an actor, um, that, of that I'm sure all artists get where like, if you're not, if you're not a hundred percent totally doing it, if you have a backup plan, um, then you're not, then you're not real or you're not in it. Um, and, and <laughs> so you kind of convince yourself in some ways that you need to be a starving artist in order to be an artist. Um, and sometimes and and I think that's a lot of the public perception as well. Um, it's and so yeah, it's just it's just cyclical and and kind of gross. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- I think that we do glorify the sort of like rags to riches story for lack of a less cliche phrase that like, you know, when we want to watch the E true Hollywood, whatever this person suffered for so long, and it paid off, like we're really, I think invested in that story arc. And yeah, I think that I think that it's damaging, potentially. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, and that's basically what's informed the, the rest of my work. And part of what I was, um, so passionate about and where the conflict came in was that uh, there's also a bit of a push when you're an actor to be not political. Um, like I know a lot of actors are political. Um, but a lot aren't. A lot aren't. And that's, that's kind of an industry thing, right? And especially as, especially as a woman, there's a lot of, of pressure put on you to not be difficult to work with. Um, so if someone, you know, sees you speaking out against something or, you know, if you're, um, if you're really, really active in your activism and, and there is always kind of the risk that uh, someone's not going to like that and just not going to hire you because they don't want to, they don't want to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that make that makes a lot of sense. I think it's unfortunate. But even just like, I, I, as you were saying that I was sort of running through a Rolodex in my mind of some of the most famous actresses and how few of them I've seen, you know, maybe they are speaking out about things, but certainly not anything that I've seen. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with what you're talking about, that it's, you know, this need to be likable and palatable and to not make waves. Oh God. Well, like, and that's, it's not exclusive to actresses. Like we do that. I mean, of course, right. (laughs) All over the place, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely built into the industry. Um, and it was just the more, um, dehumanized I felt. And at the same time, the more I was learning about, about feminism and, uh, you know, just how we like sexualize women, um, the more I wanted to talk about it. And, uh, the more I had to accept that if I talk about it, people aren't going to want to work with me as an actor and also probably not going to work with them. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. Were you, raised in sort of an activist political climate environment with your either family or friends or peers? Like, or was this something that you came to as an adult? Uh, I, I, I was in a weird way, not in like the traditional, like, you know, my, like, uh, the, the, my mom was a bra burner kind of way. Um, which I feel like that's, 
so I, I have a hard time saying that I was because I don't have the same story as everyone else. Um, but my, my mom is a diplomat. Um, so I, and she worked for foreign affairs. So I grew up overseas and she was always very active in her union, um, through the like seventies, eighties, nineties, when a lot of, uh, well, I'm into the 2000s, actually. So in a lot of discussions around, uh, you know, like marriage rights and uh, things like that were happening. My mom was always very, very active in those. Uh, so she was active, but in within that like structure, not as a like on the streets. Right. Like of. taking you to marches or something. Right. Although she did do that, like they, there were many times that they were on strike. I'm pretty sure my first like official protest uh, I was like in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's a neat story. <laughs> on strike, yeah. <laughs> Protesting in the womb. So <laughs> then as you got older, how did that change for you? Like what was the first time that sort of without your family's influence that you got involved? I guess I'm going to leave that kind of vague because whatever form that took, I don't know, but I would love to hear about it. Um, that's an interesting question. I think in, in some ways I've kind of always been involved. Um, my mom's job specifically is to, uh, like rework systems and, um, and, and fix them. Basically she goes places where things aren't running very well and she just like cleans up and makes things make sense and makes things more efficient. Does she, um, does she want to take over the U S government? <laughs> she could, I, sw- I, sh- I swear she could. Um, and, and yeah. And I think I've always kind of taken that framework into, into everything. Um, so like even within, I, I even did that in acting. I ended up like producing my own show at one point because it, it just comes from this place of like, you know what, this isn't working. Why aren't we doing it this way? This way is better. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Just having a mindset of being able to look at like the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So I'm excited to dig into this because this is how I was actually trying to remember back to specifically how I found you and your work and writing. It was probably through like the rabbit hole of the internet at some point, but it was definitely through um, pieces that you have written about, you know, white folks getting involved in racial justice. And so I guess that question specifically, do you remember your own introduction to like that type of work or activism in general? Like how did you come to be so I guess like vocal and involved in that. Um, mm, it's a layered question. Um, I think there's a, there's a few components of that. Um, so the, the first one is that, uh, since my mom was in foreign affairs, I grew up overseas and, um, I grew up in Zimbabwe, which is in Africa. Um, and my best friend was, uh, was biracial at the time. And I was about nine years old or so. And I remember her, uh, just looking at me and saying like, you know, some people hate me. And I was like, what? I was like, why, why do some people hate you? Like, she's my friend. She's awesome. Right. (laughs) And she was like, some people hate me because 
my mom's white and my dad's black. Mm. And, and the, the conversation that ensued wasn't just specifically about racism, but also about uh, sort of the, the dynamic in, in Zimbabwe at the time, the, the fact that like there were quite a few, like very few biracial people there. So in fact, um, being of, of, from a biracial background was really uh, new. I mean, Zimbabwe also had a, a, a form of apartheid for a little while when it was uh, part of Rhodesia. Um, and she also, her family would travel back and forth to Belgium sometimes. And she brought up the fact that, you know, when, uh, when she was in Belgium, her family was treated differently because uh, basically people were, were mad at her mom for being married to a black man. Mm-hmm. But when they were in Zimbabwe, people were mad at her dad for being married to a white woman. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and this, and it, it all, you know, just kind of, it was a bit of a perfect storm of like, this is my best friend who I love. Um, and I, I could really see her and hear her. Um, and, and, you know, kids have a really amazing way of explaining things to each other in a way that just makes sense for them. And so she was the the perfect person to have that conversation with really. So it's, it's since then, it's something I've always been aware of. And then you combine that with, you know, my mom's <laughs> fix the system brain <laughs> and, uh, and, and here we are. Uh, the, the first thing that I ever wrote publicly on, on white people in anti-racism work was called the state of white women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've been fairly like vocal in, in social media ways and, uh, before that, but I'd say up until then it was very much more on like a, a friendship basis rather than a, a system that like systemic kind of approach. What do you mean by that on a friendship basis? Um, it was, uh, I'd say more about either like defending or supporting my friends of color when they asked me to, um, then like specifically addressing white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would just be, uh, you know, like, uh, going into, comments on their Facebook posts and, and cleaning up nonsense or just offering them support or hearing them. Um, but yeah, I started to see more of a, a need for uh, some direct action with white people. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that two-part piece, the state of white women, um, that that being the first thing that you really wrote publicly, you know, with this topic in mind, what, do you remember the catalyst for that? Like what happened that then you sat down in the morning or whatever it was and thought, okay, this needs to be written. I'm the one who's going to write this. Go. I do. Um, so I was, I was, uh, here in Canada, we had, uh, we had a, a, a mass shooting at a mosque in January of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and six people died. And I know this is 
it's a little it's a little different in the states. Um, this is this was one of our our first mass shootings in a a long time, um, and so I was going to protests and uh, just trying to be like aware and supportive. So I was on the uh, the event pages for it, and you know someone was asking uh, if if some white people would be uh, open to say like escorting. Um, any like Muslim people who would be going on public transit, uh, you know, just meet up with them at a station and, and go with them and, and sit with them so that, you know, no one, if, or if someone bothers them that you're there. Um, so I was sort of helping with all of that stuff. And as I was getting more and more into it and more and more involved, I was getting more and more frustrated with the conversations that I was seeing my, my, white friends having and the, just the, that like, Oh wow, that shooting is so sad. Here's a picture of my dog. And like, like, you know, it just, it just kept going. And, um, so I posted this really like frustrated, sarcastic, ranty kind of Facebook status, um, (laughs) that was like, you know what? I, I'm going to make a group called nice white ladies. And, we're, we're going to go to protests and we're going to bring cookies and we're going to offer childcare and we're going to, you know, make room for prayer circles and we're going to, I don't know, watch people's stuff if they want us to. And we're going to take our nice white lady faces and, and park ourselves between police and protesters and just, you know, smile our nicest white lady smiles. And that's what we're going to do. Um, and, uh, and then I went away for like an hour and I came back and the post had been shared a few times and I had like multiple people asking me for an invite to the group. <laughs> okay. So it was sarcastic at first. That's interesting. Okay. It was totally sarcastic. I was just like, I was basically like being kind of passive aggressive and trying to call out white women for like, not for not being with me on this and not showing up and not, um, and, and just ignoring this and this, you know, and there was so much coming down the pipelines at the same time, right? There was like the, the women's March had just happened. Um, the Muslim ban was like right there, you know, that it wasn't just that one event, but there were just several things that were happening and just this continued forced kind of ignorance of it. Mm-hmm. And I was, just so frustrated. Um, I really naively at first thought that maybe like white women just didn't know where to go. You know, I, I like, maybe they needed a map or some, some directions to where the protests were or like, (laughs) you know, someone just needed to like send them a calendar invite. Like maybe, maybe that was the issue. Um, so I put the, I put the group together. I expected honestly like 12 of my friends maximum to join um, and woke up two days later and we had like, I don't even know, like over a hundred people. And by the end of the week, it was over 200 people. And I I very quickly learned that like the issue isn't so much that they need, you know, directions. Uh, 
at least not physical directions in terms of like go here and turn right. Um, <laughs> the issue was, was a lot more deep seated and that's what the state of white women came out of was what I was observing in the group and what was coming up for people. Okay. So I definitely want to spend a bunch of time digging into this. Um, before we do that, I think just like some disclaimers, I'm not Mm -hmm. looking to you to be like the capital E expert, right. In any of this stuff, I just really connected with your writing and the work that you do. And I think that these conversations are important, particularly when we allow them to be imperfect. Like I, I'm, I would say a year and a half into this work, right? Like really new to it. And there's plenty of people that know way more than me. And so I just wanted to, I don't know, I just thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about this sort of topic, like nice white ladies doing anti-racism work. And I have a bunch of questions for you on just your personal experience, but with a disclaimer that I know that you don't like speak for, you know, like anyone <laughs> as like the, you know, here's your crown, you're the expert that's that's perfect um yeah I, and 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 like don't worry about it i will probably say something wrong too and <laughs> that's okay and but I'll- i think that that's one of the common i mean cuz you know i think about conversations you know private conversations that i have had with my you know, I guess some, you know, men in my life too, but mostly my white lady friends, right? Like talking about that, if we're just going to stick with that terminology, there does seem to be, and I see it on social media too, these, this fear of, I don't want to say or do the wrong thing. There's a lot of fear around that. And I, I wonder how much of that is just the universal experience and how much of that is like baked into the socialization of being a woman, being a white woman, that kind of back to what we were talking about, about the actresses that, you know, we're raised to be like to prize being likable that and like Mm -hmm. to, and to be the one who makes everything nice and is the hostess and, you know, whatever that kind of winds up looking like, but that there is a real fear of saying or doing the wrong thing, but there's no way to do hard work without saying or doing the wrong thing. It's going to happen. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. Maybe you can give some examples, you know, of times that you made mistakes. I would actually, yeah, let's go there. Tell me (laughs) about a time in this like arena where you made a mistake. Uh, well, like the very first iteration of, of nice white ladies was a mistake. It was an absolute mistake. Um, I did it all wrong. Um, I was not aware enough of movement work and the history of movement work and specifically the history of white people in, uh, in anti-racism work, uh, and, at first, nice white ladies was an all white space. And that is definitely not okay. <laughs> um, we, I, you know, I very quickly shifted gears. I think it, it only took me like a few weeks. And, um, and so we now have, uh, like, a, 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 we call them the, the advisors, the, the people of color advisory board. Um, and, and a number of, of, educators in the space as well, who are, uh, who are, I'd say majority black, um, majority black women and femmes. But yeah, I mean, just, just the, the fact that I went and did that on my own without knowing what I was getting into or the history of it, like that in itself was, was a mistake. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, so grateful for the the correction 
and the feedback and the way that it's grown since then. Um, and I think if I had just said like, Oh no, I made a mistake. I guess it's all over. Um, like that would have been, I think in the end that would have been a worse mistake. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think, I mean, that's a skill that, I mean, I could certainly stand to strengthen and hopefully will always be strengthening, but the ability to make mistakes and not like fold and hide, right? I mean, because even that's a privilege to be able to say, oh, I made this mistake. I'm just going to throw my hands up and not do this anymore, right? Being able to, but I think that has a lot to do with people's fears of making a mistake is the, especially with the quickness of things on the internet that like how quickly there can be this like insane pile on, right. Of yeah, like there, which like it, it makes sense. I, I, I'm really grateful for the people in my life. I've heard it, you know, talked about instead of calling people out, like calling them in, right. Like the people who love me enough and care about me enough to send me a private email or to say, Hey, like you said this thing. And I thought that was problematic because XYZ, right? And to be able to mm-hmm. listen to that and say, oh, okay, I'm sorry, like, and take that. And like, they wouldn't be taking the time for the most part, unless someone's like really being a horrible troll, right? Which is like a separate mm-hmm. issue that when people are, and I, I wonder if this has been your experience too, like taking the time to correct us, like, that's a gift. Mm-hmm. That means someone cares enough <laughs> about you to do that. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, like if you want to learn how to take criticism, uh, take an acting class. <laughs> hey, that's that's interesting. Okay, so th- th- I guess that's another skill potentially that has carried over for you. Oh, totally. It, it, I mean, just the the ability to like work with different directors, different uh, like acting partners, uh, to be able to hear hear criticism and like separate someone's criticism from their frustration. Um, and be able to see what they're actually saying. Um, that's, that's huge. Uh, I kind of like, I, I see so many parallels between acting and, um, anti-racism work. Um, I, I tell people that acting is often like painting with a blindfold on, like, you know what you want to be making, um, but you have no idea what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So you, you need, you need that feedback. Um, and there's also this, this thing in acting where, you know, because a lot of it happens on your face and you can't see your face when you're doing it, um, you kind of just have to accept that some things that might feel right to you on the inside don't look like what you're trying to convey on the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, you get feedback, like, I know you're going for anger, in this scene, but it's really coming across like constipation. So can you try something different? Um. Yeah. Which, I mean, I can see the parallel for that and, you know, the activism work that we're talking about. So, I mean, I know that the nice white ladies group community, I don't know, whatever the, the terminology is that you use sort of came out of a sarcastic post, but <laughs> why did you choose the name nice white ladies? Like, cause I've heard that sort of nice white lady syndrome or like something like that. I've heard that thrown around a bunch and I was hoping that you could give some more, like, I guess like actual background on why that phrase or name or what that means to you. Um, well, that's, that's kind of exactly why it's really, it's one of those things that like, you know, I, I just said it and, um, I'm I'm really lucked out in the fact that there's actually so many layers to it and I can keep pointing to it like, aha, look at this brilliant decision I made. Um, 
just take credit when, for it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is, it is for that connection back to, to, uh, the expectations that are put on women, the socialization of, of white women in particular, um, the, the, that perfectionist bootstrap kind of ideal, um, you know, like if you, if you make it enough, then you start turning around, you turn around and you start to be charitable. Um, it's, it's about pointing out the fact that a lot of our good intentions are also a double-edged sword. Um, and yes, and it is a direct reference to, to nice white lady syndrome, which is that sort of, um, you know, white, nice white lady teaches black children at an inner city school how to read. And then we all feel really good about ourselves kind of thing. Yeah. I, the, the word nice, I was thinking about this, like obviously knowing that you and I were going to have this conversation, Mm. thinking about that the last couple of days, like how problematic even that can be. Like I, I think of, you know, things that I've heard or conversations or stuff that gets said at the Thanksgiving dinner table or whatever about, you know, well, it, all that matters is that you're a nice person and that you're a kind person and, you know, just be nice to everyone. And why can't everyone get along? Right. Like there's like this sort of like a cliche platitude, you know, bucket that's filled with things about being nice and, okay, but that's not enough. I don't know. Like, I think there's something in that, that like maybe we're taught to believe that it is enough to just be a nice person, but I don't think that it is. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I I know what you're, I know what you're getting at. And this is something we like hit up on all the time um, in, in the group. It's, I think the real, the, the root of it is that when we're brought up, we're taught these rules about how to engage with people. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what everyone's experience was, but I definitely grew up with a lot of like, don't say that it's not nice or like, don't do that. It's not nice. Or don't do or, that. It's not ladylike. Yeah. I got that. Right. Too. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I guess back in the day, back in the day when women were, you know, property and yeah, the good old the, days, right? The good, those days, oh God. back in the day when women were property and their main function was to be married off like white women, because that has not really been the reality for women of color. Um, I guess, yeah, I can see why I can see why like you know, don't cross your legs like that because then (laughs) you won't get married or whatever was a rule. But we've kind of continued to carry these rules forward and there isn't really as much justification for them as there was before other than to keep us quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, But just the way that it's presented and taught to us makes makes us really, really afraid of what happens if we don't do those things. Um, and so there's this giant, like looming, invisible monster of punishment that is coming to us if we don't send out those Christmas cards on time and, 
and I don't know if we've ever stopped to like identify what that is or name it. Um, I call it disposability. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are, are a few of the most common topics of discussion? Because you, you have a Facebook group, right? A private Facebook group? Mm-hmm. Okay. What are some of the most common things that come up for discussion within the group? Hmm. Uh, we get a lot of, a lot of questions um, around, you know, like if you're – if you're at all involved in social justice or, or somewhat interested in it, you've seen all of these articles about like what is cultural appropriation and um, what are microaggressions. And so we get a lot of uh, the, a lot of like clarifying questions about those things, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of like, I've heard that this is a microaggression, but uh, what if I do this or what if I say this, or is this bad? Is this bad? Because so, um, I'd say that that come that sort of thing comes up quite a bit, but we really try to push past that and go to the deeper questions. Um, and that's where we're finding a lot of really, really interesting stuff. Can you give me an example of one of those deeper questions? Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry. Those are really drawn out. Answers. No, it's, it's, it's okay. I'll, I'll take the dramatic suspense. <laughs> Can I give an answer to this? So like I said before, uh, disposability comes up quite a bit, that sort of fear of, of being thrown away or being, uh, not good enough, um, or that someone will see that you're not good enough. Um, what we're working on lately, uh, is that for a few months we were encouraging the nice white ladies to make friends with women of color, like, um, you know, just make friends first because a lot of people were kind of looking for a script um, of like, oh, if I see someone doing X, what do I say? Mm-hmm. And usually the answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> um, and we were discovering that like, oh, maybe maybe you don't know how to respond when this woman of color is in need because you're not friends with her. So maybe if you make friends with her, you'll have a better idea of, of you know, how she wants you to respond when you're out at the club and someone touches her hair. And we were working with that for a little while. And then all of a sudden we like that we, the, the admins stopped and we were like, wait a second, do white women know how to be friends? What do you mean? There's some amazing things that I've learned about friendship. Um, specifically from women of color that I've never, ever experienced in a friendship with a white woman. And I thought that experience was unique to me. Um, and since I've had such a a different upbringing, I don't, I don't often, you know, assume that my experience was everyone else's experience. In fact, I assume that mine was quite different. Mm -hmm. Um, but once I posed the question of like, do white women know how to be friends? We, we, we dug into that a little and we discovered that, that a lot of us don't. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Can you give some more, I guess, like, I'm super curious about the details. Like, what would you say the characteristics are of like knowing how to be friends versus, you know, whatever your experience and some of the other, you know, women in the group, their experience. Mm. <clears throat> um, so, well, just the other day there was a, uh, 
there was like some some conflict on on a post as there often is <laughs> um and someone was trying to express support for one of the uh for one of the women of color in that thread and just <clears throat> kind of kind of stepped in the way <laughs> like just kind of went in to tell the other white woman to back off but that wasn't what was needed at the time and she ended up messaging me for a while and uh, I was talking to her and it wasn't until I gave her permission to reach out to the woman of color and offer support that she calmed down. Um, and I was kind of amazed by that because I was like, is this, is this what you needed this whole time? You needed to know that you could say I'm here. I support you. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> like, you don't need my permission to say that. Um, and then I told her, uh, I was like, this particular woman of color is, 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 is a witch. She's, she's witchy. So she really, you know, she really appreciates things like good vibes, or if you're sending her positive energy, that's, she'll appreciate that message. And when I shared that with my, uh, my moderating team, um, one of them came back and said, I'm just now realizing that I don't know what any of my white friends would prefer in that situation. I don't know if I'm supposed to send thoughts or prayers or vibes or any, like, I don't, I don't even, I don't know that about my friends. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's so much interesting stuff here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like so good. Um, okay. Pivoting slightly. Um, mm -hmm. I am interested in the, I mean, I guess this could be on the topic of, racism, it could be sexism, misogyny, I'm sure. Unfortunately, it like could be a lot of different things. But, you know, keeping, I guess, the the topic at, at hand, if we're talking about racism, I'm really interested in the the depth of embedded sometimes like thoughts, beliefs and actions that are like so subconscious that we don't even notice them, right? Like, I think, for the most part, you know, people are really quick to say, well, I'm not racist, because XYZ or whatever. But like looking at sort of the just like systemic things and things that maybe like we believe or are like default gut check actually just like the things that are so embedded that we have to, I guess, like do the work on ourselves and purposefully unlearn. And if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you can give some examples of some of like the work that you have had to do personally, sort of in this regard, like any details about what that's looked like in your real life? Like what have you had to unlearn, I guess? Oh, so much. Um, <laughs> So, so much stuff. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of it does come down to personal work. Um, I think like 90% of it probably comes down to personal work. 90% um, of what? 90% of like the, the, the overarching journey of anti-racism. Okay. You know, if it's, if it's something you're getting into because you feel like, you know, you, you You've, you've got some time and now it's, you know, you can go to more protests. Um, a lot of it is, is like reflecting and listening and not, <laughs> and not talking. Um, I've, I've had to uh, unlearn. Um, I've had to unlearn like <clears throat> feelings dumping basically, uh, specifically when, uh, someone is sharing uh, an experience. Um, so, 
you know, like before it used to be like, you would tell me a story um, about like your bad day. And I'd be like, Oh, I totally hear you. I had the worst day. And then just tell my story. Okay. <laughs> um, and like that sort of, it's a way of empathizing, but it's not really listening. Um, and it's, it's when it comes to like the experiences of, of marginalized groups, it is not appropriate at all. <laughs> It's not appropriate at all. Like uh, if we're if we're using like the conversation of of say like touching black women's hair, you know if if there are historical racialized connotations in a white person touching a black woman's hair that uh, just do not extend to a white person touching a white person's hair. Mm-hmm. So as much as I, you know may have a story about sometime someone touched my hair. It's not the same. And, uh, I, I very quickly realized that I didn't have like scripted responses for those situations. I didn't, I didn't know what to say that was appropriate. Um, I didn't know how to listen in a way that wasn't like, Oh yeah. And then I felt this way. Right. Like that doesn't Um, wind up centering yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a that's a, a really big thing to learn, and and I still catch myself doing it sometimes, and and I just have to say, oops, and adjust, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Anything else that comes to mind of things that you have had to unlearn? Um, one of the ones I'm working on right now is urgency. My very very good friend Didi Delgado has a a quote on, on one of her pieces. Um, and the quote is about how like white women come to anti-racism work as if they're complaining to the manager at Whole Foods. (laughs) Uh, Sam, what, what, what do you mean by that? Or I guess like, what do you take from that, from her words? Uh, Like, it's like, it's like, you know, for a lot of white women and I'm not, I'm not judging for a lot of white women. It's like, we just woke up one day and realized that racism was a thing. Um, and so we're like, oh, how has that been allowed to continue? Who do I, who do I speak to about this? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Where do I send my complaint, you know, or my $20 or whatever it is so that the racism will stop? Right. Who's, whose face do I shake my nice white lady finger in? (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 um, like I, I still have a little bit of that in me where like, you know, someone tells me a problem and I'm like, I'm going to fix it right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And, and like, I have, I really have to stop myself sometime and be like, wait, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to fix this for you and you just need me to listen. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And on. also I can't fix it. Right. Like it's like the, the overwhelming ego of being like, Whoa, so it's the right person just hasn't complained to the right person yet. Right? Like that's clearly yeah. not, you know, like that when you said like you starting to learn about the history of movement work and stuff, like this has been happening, right? Like we may yeah. be newer to this, you know, and I count myself among that, but yeah, I, I, I definitely, definitely, I've never heard it described quite that way. I found Didi Delgado's work through you. She's amazing. She's incredible. Yeah, there's there's a quote that I pulled out of uh, like a piece of hers that I have. I have like a little thing of quotes on my like notes desktop thing, whatever. And um, it was from one of her articles, and it's it was talking about sort of like allyship, and um, it says 
it's she's basically quoting someone else. She's quoting sex worker and activist Laura Lemoon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically that Laura said, um, an ally should be personally gaining nothing through their activism. In fact, if you're an ally, you should be losing things through your activism, space, voice, recognition, validation, identity, and ego. And I thought that was like the best description that I've ever heard of like being an ally, like white folks are so concerned with be, like being a good white person or like being seen, maybe not even being, but being seen as a good white person. And I definitely have had to unlearn that too. Um, but this idea that like you should be losing things, like you're losing space, voice, recognition, ego, identity, like that, I don't know, that really hit me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because because it needs to be in in those spaces. And I don't I don't count the work I do with white women as allyship. Exactly. Um, like allyship to me is just, is, is just the showing up and doing the actual work part. It's the, it's the, it's like being a white person at a black lives matter protest. That's an act of allyship. It's like uh, the ally is not a title. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like some, sometime, someday someone will dub me ally and then I'm done. Um, I can, you know, stand in the role of an ally for a, a couple hours at a protest or um, at a, you know, meeting or, um, you know, in a few minutes and by like resharing or amplifying something. Um, but uh, talking to white people, white women about white womanhood, I don't really count as, as allyship work be, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just, uh, too many thoughts just came into my brain. Um, okay. <laughs> so something that I really like about your style, I'm trying to remember, I mean, there was one piece specifically, I think it was one of the ones that you wrote right after the terrorist attack in Charlottesville, I think where it was like very like bullet pointy almost. Um, and so first of all, can you just kind of give a recap of of that post and then I'll say what I was going to say? Oh, I was so angry. I was so angry. (laughs) I was so angry and I didn't know what to do with it. I'm, I'm in Canada. Um, so there is, there is that like distance and, and sometimes I feel like I kind of feel like I'm, I'm like looking at the U S from like my balcony in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, uh, and I just want to be there and I want to do something. Um, but the, what, what struck me, what was so like stark, um, is, was the difference in my social media feeds between my, um, between my black friends and my white friends. And, uh, so it was, I guess it was basically like another moment, just like the, the nice white ladies group. <laughs> I guess it was just another, like, uh, why are why aren't you doing anything? Frustration. Um, but also, I've I've learned since then. I've learned I've learned about that that fear of doing it wrong. I've learned about that. I've learned that that not everyone is has that instinct that I have. Um, that, and, and I've done tons of research and I think it's actually ADHD based, but like, if I see a pile of crap, I just jump in with both feet and then I'm like, let's, let's, let's get this, let's fix this. Let's do it. And like, yes, I get, I get corrected all the time for doing that. Um, but I had to learn that like, not everyone jumps in. 
I spent a lot of time in my life looking around to be like, what are you, why are you standing there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that post was my, like, I think it was one of the first times that I was like, Oh God, these people, people are just going to keep standing there. If someone doesn't tell them what to do the same way, you know, if you're in an, a, an emergency situation, you should point at someone and tell them to call 911. Don't just yell someone call 911 because then no one will do it. Some everyone um, always assumes that someone else is going to do it or that someone else is more qualified to do it or whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that the, the bullet, the bullet list Charlottesville post was my attempt to like get some stuff done um, and get people doing things and also uh, like see their feelings um, and let them know that, 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 that was normal. Like that you should feel scared. That's, that's what you should feel right now. You should feel angry. Mm-hmm. These these, these are real feelings that are proportionate to this time. It is un, it is abnormal that you are posting a cookie recipe right now mm-hmm. while this is happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, what struck me about the post was the sort of intensity and no nonsenseness of it. I mean, I'll put a link in the show notes, but just the format of, you know, basically um, you would say, Basically, it seemed like you were like quoting potentially a nice white lady, right? Like what someone would say. And then like you had a very direct response back. And it was just like that over and over and over. Like, well, but I'm angry. And then your response. But I don't know what to do. And then your response. Like that it was just – and I thought that there – I had seen like a lot of think pieces and a lot of things that were like fluffy. And there was something to me that I found very reassuring about – almost like the slap in the face of that style of like, okay, then like do that, right? That it was just – I don't know. There's something about that that I think we need. Yeah, there was, uh, I was really blown away by the, the feedback on that one. Um, I, I think it might be my, it might actually be my most, uh, like popular piece to date. Um, which is kind of amazing to me because I, I just, I wrote it in like an angry rage on my couch in the span of like, you know, 45 minutes or something Mm -hmm. while also ranting at my husband at the same time. (laughs) Um, uh, like, and I didn't, I don't think I edited it. I'm not sure if I even spell checked it. Um, I've probably gone back since then and, and tidied it up a bit, but, uh, the, the feedback to it was amazing. Um, and the fact that so many people just like latched onto it and, and did something and like, you know, and for the people who didn't know what to say, uh, I was seeing it a lot of times reshared with just like, just like a blurb from the article, Mm -hmm. um, specifically the one about, um, how to denounce white supremacy. Um, that one was just shared over and over again. And some people started a hashtag. Um, and yeah, I was just like, wow, I guess you really did need a, like a, a checklist. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So, I mean, what is something that I wanted to do, you know, I, and we've mentioned some of them already, the, I don't even know if excuses is the right word, but things that people either say that I hear a lot, um, that, you know, I would love to get your sort of gut check, no nonsense, like response to. So like, for example, (laughs) if someone were to say to you, like, but I don't want to say you do the wrong thing, like what we were saying before, like, what would be your like tough love response? You're going to say or do the wrong thing, but anything you say is better than saying nothing mm-hmm. in pretty much any situation, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if you're willing to learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, what about if someone were to say, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but I don't know what to do or where to start. Like someone who says, you know, I, I care about this. I hear what you're saying. Like, preach into the choir in terms of, you know, someone already agrees with you. You don't have to convince them, but they just feel so overwhelmed about where to start doing this work and how to not have the approach of, you know, trying to complain to the manager at Whole Foods. Then you learn. (laughs) Um, Yeah. A lot of people want to fix racism right away. Um, Like that would be great. But if it was an easy fix, it'd be done by now. Right, right. <laughs> like, like there, there, there is no, there is no like crash course. There is no like thirty minute solution to, you know, breaking the racism. Um, if if it really, if it really is a matter of like I have no time and I can't learn this and I, I you know, I wish I could do something, but no, then give money. Mm-hmm. That's just give, just give your money that we could use that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about someone who says, okay, well I'm already giving money and I just like constantly feel like I'm not doing enough. You're probably not. <laughs> Listen. Okay. I'm glad you said that. Wait. Okay. <laughs> I love you. So, okay. Say more. We're probably not doing enough. I mean, I, I, I feel every day, like I'm not doing enough. I think if I ever start to feel like I'm doing enough, that's, that's a bad sign. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the organizers that I, that I work with and that I help are, you know, they have jobs, they have kids and they're still out here doing this work every single day. So <clears throat> if you're not, if you're not matching them, you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember another post of yours where you were talking about this idea that like, this isn't anyone's first choice. Like no one wants this. Like if obviously if, no. if, if, if racism didn't exist, we wouldn't have to do, I think it was Didi Dagata who you were using as an example. Like she's a poet. She'd rather be writing poetry than like doing social justice work, but this is a work that has to be done. She's a poet. She's a mom. She's an, she's an artist. She would like, like, and, and also Didi is just a genuinely like fun person and an awesome partier. Like I've been to a a barbecue at her house and it's amazing. She, I guarantee you, she would rather be like hanging out with friends and just like, you know, living a good life and all that stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want to be doing this work. I, you know, I, I sing, I teach kids music. Um, I, I don't, this isn't my first choice. And, um, I have no problem with us solving racism so that I can, you know, go back to (laughs) doing something artsy and playing more video games. Um, (laughs) yeah, that brings up something else that I've been thinking about a lot. This idea of sort of the difference between fault and responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, as you know, so what do I want to say? And I'm going to say it totally imperfectly conversations well, that I have heard, um, and, or been a part of, you know, with, uh, white people, right. White friends who are sort of waking up to this in like the t- same time span, like what you said, that people just woke up and were like, Oh, racism's a problem. <laughs> like that's definitely happening. And mm-hmm. this feeling, you know, of being really defensive when, you know, people are saying, you know, 53% of white women voted for Trump and like all that people feel like there's like bashing of white women, right. Or whatever, like, like, or just Mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of 
instinct to get defensive and to want to say, well, not all white women. And, you know, this isn't my fault. The idea that like, yes, systemic racism is not like you, Aaron, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. But just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean that it isn't your responsibility to be part of the solution. Exactly. And that, um, that, yeah. I, I don't know. I've just been thinking about that a lot. Hmm. The not all white women thing. Oh, my God. oh yeah. Ta- okay. Uh, so yeah, another thing. <laughs> talk uh, about that. What's, what's your reaction to that? If someone who wants to say, <laughs> but not all white women, but like, look at me, I'm a good white woman. <laughs> I got so tired of talking about it that I have a piece about it. Okay. <laughs> it's called, uh, we are what we are. And, um, and it's addressed to white people. And it's specifically about that, like defensiveness that comes up whenever the words white people are brought up. Um, First of all, for some reason, white people are scared of the word white. I don't know why, but they are. They're like, they hear the word white people and they're like, racism. (laughs) It's like, no, no, that's not, you are white. It's not racism to point that out. Like, it's not a secret. (laughs) We can, we can see that you're white. It's okay. You're white. I'm white. It's okay. Um, Right. And not talking about it doesn't make you not white and doesn't make you not part of the group of people who are white. No, it doesn't. And there's, there's this whole idea out there that um, if, if you are colorblind, you are somehow a better person. Yeah, that was the other one that I wanted your feedback on, folks who say, well, I don't see color. That's bullshit. Insert eye roll here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, like, unless you are actually colorblind in some way that has not been medically documented before, because colorblindness is usually on the green-blue spectrum or on the like, red-yellow spectrum, so... As far as I know, you should still be able to see like shades of skin. Um, that's bullshit. That is that is like just basically you trying to make yourself feel better. And one of the most frustrating things about that is that no one asked you to be colorblind. Mm. You can you can go back and look in history. I cannot find a single like actual complete piece of of work or writing or speech from um you know like the civil rights movement or anything there's that one like martin luther king jr quote that gets misused all of the time Mm -hmm. but i cannot find a complete piece of thought that says i don't want you to see that i'm a black man or a black woman or any of those things like no one was asking for colorblindness they were asking for us to see um, the the differences and to just respect them and like and not systemically disenfranchise them because of it. Um, yeah, you're definitely right that it's it's sort of said this idea of like, well, I don't see color. It's sort of said from this like moral high horsey place that I find really interesting that like that it 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 is sort of with this tone of like superiority. Like I'm above all of this. Like I'm a nice person. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, yeah. The defensiveness. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more about, because I'm sure you've seen that like in your group and just online in general that, you know, I guess specifically with white women or if that's obviously mostly who you work with. Um, like, how do you deal with that when that comes up? When people like want to be so quick to be like, I don't know, to to distance themselves from, you know, white supremacists or whatever? Well, I th- I, I think one of the biggest struggles uh, in, in that and pointing it out is the fact that as uh, white women, we don't have a sense of community identity or a sense of community responsibility. 
Um, and so that is something that I really, really try to push and advocate for. Um, is, is us like, like you said, it's not my personal fault. It's not my fault that racism exists, but it is white women have a role that they have played in that and they've played it for a very long time. And I am responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we use a lot, I use a lot of we language. I make, try to make sure that whenever I'm, I'm talking about white women, I use, I say we instead of them. Um, I, and, and also I think combined with that is the, our, our like non-disposability policy, um, because people are afraid that, you know, if, if you know that they're racist, then you'll think they're a bad person. So you'll get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So they just keep fighting that label. And the, the, at the end of the day, all white people are racist. Mm -hmm. And once we can kind of work with that, you'll, you'll start to like, they'll start to see it. We'll see. Um, but it's, so yeah, there's a a lot of like inclusive language, um, really, really helps with that. Um, and just the, the knowledge that like you, you, you're going to say the wrong thing here and we're not throwing you away and Mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and time, lots of time. Yeah. I mean, this desire to like so quickly want to be seen as an individual and like not lumped together with the group, whether it's white women or white people in general or whatever, like I see that happen over and over. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's like a both and situation. Sure. You are an individual and also no matter how loudly you yell about it, you, we are part of this group, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you don't like what the people, what other folks in this group are doing and you don't want to be associated with them, like then it comes back to, I feel like what we were talking about, about calling people out, like denouncing things, like you said, I don't know that there is a responsibility there. And yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Cause it, it, it starts at a certain point. Like there's only so many people in the world and there's only so many people doing this work. And if white women aren't calling out other white women or calling in other white women, I should say like, then who does the responsibility fall to? Like mm-hmm. who has to do it? And that then becomes a burden on the people who need to do it for their survival. And frankly, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something else that when we talk about, I don't know if unlearning is the right thing, but on what you mentioned that, you know, 90 plus percent of the work is personal work, right? Like mm-hmm. investigating your own stuff. I feel like that goes hand in hand with the phrase that we hear all the time, check your privilege, right? That like mm. sounds, I think, I think some people bristle at that because it sounds dismissive. And mm-hmm. what actually I've, I've been trying to look at it as and actually like, okay, like actually check your, like, what are your privileges? Like, what are your platforms? What are you? And then like, how can that be? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested to hear your response to that phrase or um, sort of like what that's been like for you. Our, our privilege as white women is, hmm, it's, um, it's a bit of a, it's, it's not a bit, it's a huge lie basically. Um, and where we actually have privilege, we don't see it. And where we think we have privilege, we actually don't. What do you mean? A lot of uh, where we think we have privilege is actually just systems that maintain like patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Um, so, you know, I am 
things like I am privileged to be good looking or to be young or, Mm -hmm. um, to have this, uh, job or to not have student loan debt or like any of those things. Um, those like, you know, you're like, you're, your bullet journal gratitude list kind of sure. <laughs> things. Um, the actual privilege that we have is that we as white women have power because of whiteness and we don't tend to use it. Hmm. Interesting that, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I guess, yeah, at both end. The thing that came up for me when I was sort of investigating that in myself, and I'd be curious on your opinion. Mm-hmm. I feel like one of the privileges of being a white woman is that you are more often than not read as non-threatening. Yes, absolutely. That, you know, that was kind of back to what you were saying about like, take your nice white lady face and put it between the police and the whoever else that there is, of course, there's vulnerabilities of being a woman, right? Which could be a whole other podcast, but that there is just in general, I am seen as non-threatening. Yes. Yes. Like, absolutely. That is the current, um, like social truth. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's, there's two things that go with that. One is that we've also used that as a weapon against people of color. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, if you think of like Emmett Till or any, number of times that a white woman has called the police on a black person in their neighborhood because, you know, he was just a black person or she was just a black person in their neighborhood. Um, And the other thing is that that is conditional. That non-threatening is, and you can see that in other places in the world uh, where, you know, police have absolutely no problem using physical violence against white women mm-hmm. who are not um, adhering to Yeah, once you don't play the role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, and interesting what you said about, you know, that it can be weaponized. I feel like that's true of all privilege, right? Like that there's like a double-edged, if you have the privilege, it's a how you use it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God. I want to talk to you about this forever and ever. Um, (laughs) But there actually is another topic that I want to cover, but before we move to that, and we could obviously always do a part two or anything like that. Do you have any resources to recommend for people listening, um, like specifically about anti-racism work, like anywhere that you would point them to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, My go-to list uh, would be um, Ijeoma Aluo's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just fantastic and wonderful. Um, I also really like Talon Kell and there's a blog called Killing Georgina, which is fantastic. Um, in terms of, uh, resources, safety pin box is, uh, the best out there. Yep. I agree. I'm, or- a, I'm a member of that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Safety pin box for anti-black race, like anti-black race, anti-racism. I think I had too many antis in there. Safety pin box. You want to be a better ally to black people. <laughs> that's, and that's where uh, you go. What I have found particularly valuable is how much of it, it is asking, like making you ask yourself tough questions. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fabulous. Um, so Pivoting completely, something that you mentioned before and that you said um, 
when we were emailing about this episode, something that you wanted to talk about um, was ADHD. And you said, I think there are so many misconceptions, especially for women with ADHD. And um, I agree with you and don't know much about it and would love to hear just about your experience or whatever misconceptions that you would like to clear up. Um, so I, I have, I have ADHD and I was diagnosed at 23, but I've had it my entire life. And I also am, I'm still struggling with finding a way to say this that doesn't sound braggy, but that's also my, like, that's my, like, I'm like, this is also hey, my white lady no. fear. Real talk, like, be braggy. <laughs> braggy, I guess. Oh my God. Someone's going to think I, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really, really smart. <laughs> <laughs> like preach. I like it. Yes. Like, good. <laughs> like, I mean, I've, I've been IQ tested like multiple times and, and they can't accurately measure my IQ kind of smart. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and that's not often something that you think of when you hear ADHD. You don't often think that someone who has ADHD can also be smart. Um, and I think ADHD in a lot of ways is just the way my brain works. And so like, it's not actually something that I would give up for any amount of money, um, in the world. Uh, yeah, it's, um, ADHD is, uh, is an executive function disorder primarily. And executive function is like the invisible secretary at the front of your brain, that sort of subconsciously classifies all of the information that you're getting. So if you are reading a book and you're interested in the book and a light flickers nearby, that secretary decides whether or not you pay attention to it or you see it. Um, having ADHD means that my, the secretary at the front of my brain is like on permanent leave. <laughs> Okay, and this is a great analogy. Yeah. I receive every every stimulus I receive has equal weight to my brain. So, I could be really really interested in the conversation I'm having with you, but if there's a light flickering overhead, I'm going to be distracted by it every time. Mm -hmm. And uh and I have to like consciously shift my attention back onto you and consciously fight the urge or that, that like constant, that like little alarm bell in my head that's like, look over here, look over here, look over here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that gets, and the reason why it's great is because I don't actually miss much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd say the downside is that it can get really exhausting and really overwhelming um, in a world that is uh, not built for that mm -hmm. um in a world that's like here's all of the things and you decide what you like right <laughs> and i'm like yeah but then i have to actually decide with my brain instead of like only seeing the things that i like automatically it's yeah so you mentioned that the first thing you do in the morning is take medication for is it for this i assume it is for okay. ADHD. so and being diagnosed later in life, do you remember like a very sort of distinct acute difference when you started taking the medication? Um, there is like a daily feeling of like, um, basically, well, you don't drink coffee. Uh, 
Do you drink caffeinated tea? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you notice that like slight difference in feeling between when you're not caffeinated, when you are caffeinated. Sure. That's kind of the same feeling that the medication has on a daily basis. It's just that like that little bit of extra zing. Um, where medication really, really helped me uh, was in being able to see sort of patterns over time. Um, because part of the, one of the, like, the, I guess the side effects of having constant stimulus is that you end up kind of living in emergency mode all of the time. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you're like, Oh no, my bill. Oh no. Rent. Oh no, I have to go to work. Oh no, I'm late. And it's just like, <laughs> um, so medication helped in a lot of like subconscious ways that, I didn't really notice until I suddenly realized the first year that I was on medication. Um, and I was also working as a, as a personal trainer at the time. That was one of my Joe jobs. Uh, I suddenly realized that I had just automatically planned for having less clients in December. And I hadn't, I like, I had automatically like set aside enough money that I would be okay in like December. And then in like early January, when I had to like nag all of my clients to come back to the gym <laughs> uh, I, and I just, I'd done it basically without thinking it, it just happened. And that's when I was like, Oh, wow, that's, this is really working. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is how normal people brains work. This is, yeah. <laughs> um, and like the year before I hadn't had that same thing. I literally like came on December 16th and was like, wait, wait, no more paychecks. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was, really, really big, uh, difference for me. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the common, um, misconception about, you know, people maybe assuming that someone with ADHD isn't smart. Are there any other misconceptions or things that you have sort of seen come up in popular culture that you're like, Nope, that's not true. Or at least not true for you. Okay. Let's see. Why don't, uh, why don't we play a game? Okay. (laughs) I like games. When I say ADD, ADHD, um, like, do you think of them as two different things? Do I know that they're, that they are two different, slightly, at least like slightly different. Sure. But do I know the actual differences? No. And that it's funny because the thing that comes to mind for me is always like, or the image that I get, it's always children. Oh yeah. It's a hyperactive little boy. Right. Like I don't think about, (laughs) I don't think about it in adults. Okay. So ADD itself is not a term anymore and it hasn't been a term since like the mid nineties. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. So then that's definitely something that I didn't know. (laughs) Right. Um, but just the fact that you didn't know that, but you still know the term ADD Mm -hmm. means that most of what you know about ADD you're getting from popular culture. Sure. Um, so the whole term is now ADHD and there's, uh, there's three different types. There's hyperactive type, which is like, you know, the little boy running around making noise. There's inattentive type, which is a kind of daydreamy, spacey-ness. I'm being really kind of loose with my terms here. Yeah, sure. Um, and then there's combination type, which is if you imagine like the daydreamy on top and like a foot tapping <laughs> okay. at the same time, that's combination type. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I what just came into my mind uh, when you said that so much of you know what we know or think of about ADD is like pop culture type stuff. I had a similar conversation with a close friend who has clinical OCD, and mm-hmm. we've talked about just the way that certain actual diagnoses diagnoses are like thrown around as like behaviors. Like someone will say like, oh, I'm so OCD, right? Or like, oh, I'm so ADD. Or like that you hear that kind of thing all the time, that it's just this like flippant, you know, you know, oh, OCD, just because I like like things a certain way. Like, and she's always quick to be like, no, no, that's not what it is, right? Like you're not, your life is not like disabled by not being able to do you know, whatever the things are that, you know, going back to, and I'm sure this this also ties into what you were saying before, with the anti-racism work of the skill of just listening, like just Mm -hmm. listening to other people's lived experience that, that experience this thing that you don't know anything about. Like I could think that I know what that's like because of, you know, the boy running around that we see through a TV show or whatever, but that's not necessarily the lived experience and certainly not of everyone and certainly not of an adult woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And uh, that's, that's something that I still, I, I really have a hard time with. Like I really take it to heart when, when people do that because it feels like they're not seeing me mm-hmm. and that's just such a huge downer for me. Um, so like I, I recently posted uh, a link to uh, one of the sort of like a, a coexisting condition with ADHD is called uh, rejection sensitive dysphoria. And uh, it means that you, you take personal rejection much more harshly. Hmm. Um, and that it's, and it's kind of a symptom of just how like emotions are handled in your ADHD brain chemically. Like you kind of just spin on things a little longer and, and sit in your feelings a little longer. Um, it's also made it like really easy for me to accept criticism. That's about something I'm doing or saying rather because I see that as not about me as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I I posted this article and like 12 people just grabbed onto it and like reshared it. And we're like, yeah, this is so me. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is a coexisting condition with ADHD. (laughs) It's not so you Mm -hmm. (laughs) unless you also have ADHD, which I'm totally open to you having. But just because you feel bad when someone says mean things to you doesn't mean that you go through the same thing I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that you go through something less or anything, but this is not you. This is me. And literally none of you stop to say, oh, Aaron, that sounds really hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You just... You, you took my toy and you ran off with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like that's like an interesting and like powerful place to start to wrap up. And it's a theme that, you know, you've brought up in different contexts throughout the conversation of just the like power of listening to the truth of someone else's lived experience. It's, it's so hard, but it, it, it changes your life. I mean, it really does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we get into our quick little rapid fire question round, is there anything that hasn't come up yet in the conversation that you wanted to talk about? I can't think of anything right now. Okay. So I have seven (laughs) rapid fiery questions for you. Um, They're questions that the Patreon community, the awesome folks who fund the podcast, every season we sort of get together and say, oh, what questions should we ask all eight guests? And um, this is what came out of that. So I have seven totally random questions for you if you are down for that. (laughs) Oh, I know. I listened. I did my research. I tried to. (laughs) 
I tried to guess at what the questions might be. Uh, I have no idea. I'm nervous. Um. It's okay. There's, there's no wrong answer. This isn't a test. Um, yeah, some of the questions are the same every time, but um, there are some new ones, especially this first one, which is my favorite. Okay. If you could have a hot fling with one fictional character, who would it be? Thor. Oh, okay. Why? Well, I mean, he's gone most of the time. <laughs> so like, there's no, there's no drama associated with that. Um, no one believes he's real. So I can't technically get in trouble for this. My husband is listening to this. And also uh, in my mind, Thor is Chris Hemsworth. So, you know, that seems obvious. This is very well thought out. This is not your first time with this question. Um, it, it totally is. actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were prepared. I like it. <laughs> Um, what is one fact or idea that you learned this year that changed the way you think about either yourself or the world? Oh, um, oh God, this one's so hard. I know it's such a good one though. I mean, it's not mine, so I can't take any credit for it, but I love this question. Uh, it's such a downer. Um, but I, there is one, there is one that keeps coming up. Um, I apologize in advance, Patreon community, for being a downer on this one. You're not a downer. It's fine. (laughs) Did you know that currently in the U.S., a black woman who goes to every single one of her OBGYN appointments is less likely to give birth to a healthy baby than a white woman who goes to no doctor's appointments at all? I did not know that. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of my my go-to fact for like the conversation around reproductive justice. I think we get really caught up in the whole like abortion thing, which is very important. Um, But also sometimes we neglect to see how uh, reproductive justice looks for, uh, for black women. And that's my, yeah. My immediate instinct is to ask why, like what's the, I mean, I guess there isn't just (laughs) like a quick answer, but when you say that, I'm like, Oh my God, tell me more. There's quite a few theories, um, and I I don't I don't know if I want to start listing them because I don't want to yeah leave the impression that I I I know. Um, well, some, I mean Google's free. I can use Google. That's like, fine. <laughs> Google is free, and um, yeah, that's right. it's a it's a good one to. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, though. Warning: if you Google this, like set aside two hours because you'll. I've you'll, spent two hours on the internet doing way worse stuff, so that's fine. <laughs> Um, what's one thing that didn't go as expected for you this year and how did you respond? Um, I mean, nice white ladies itself was not, <laughs> did not go how I expected it this year. Um, I, I really like, I like change and I, I recognize that that's not what other people like, but I have like no attachments to, um, traditions or like, this is how we've always done things Mm -hmm. type stuff. Um, so like if something's not working and I can see that it's not working, I am more than happy to like change it up, throw it out, start over, shake things like, my husband hates it. He's such a routine guy. But. Yeah, it's you just described me and my husband completely. Like I'm exactly like you, and he wants everything to be routine, the same forever and ever at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I drive him nuts, and he drives me nuts. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> but that's love, you know. <laughs> 
Um, tell me about a time when you really pushed your limits. Like maybe you did more than you thought was possible. You totally impressed yourself. What sticks out for you? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, that happens so much. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I, this is hard for me to answer because I often don't know my limits until I'm like looking at them in the rearview mirror. Hmm. Um, so a lot of the times I don't realize I've pushed the limits until, until I'm there. I, I don't know what the limit is really. I, and so I'm, I'm much more likely to suddenly like burn out and not be able to get out of bed for a few days that I am to be like, aha, I have crossed the finish line. Sure. Good yeah. job. Me. Mm-hmm. I'm more likely to go like many, many miles past it and then not realize the race was over. <laughs> What's something that you would like to do less of in 2018? Oh, this, this totally lines up with our, my, my current nice white lady challenge. <laughs> um, I am currently looking for any and all obligations that I have that have been put on me due to my uh, role and position as a white woman than because I enjoy doing them um, as like a, a white woman or a wife or uh, any of those things. Um, so can you give me an example? Yes, I can. Um, I know this is not unique to my marriage, but, and I'm not sure I've communicated this boundary to my husband yet. So he might find out when he listens to this podcast. (laughs) I am currently not caring about his mother's Christmas gift. Yeah. And next year I will not care about her birthday and I will not care about her mother's day present. And that's because she's not my mom. (laughs) Yeah. We do and take the, on that is a very common nice white lady role to be the one who is. buys presents for people and like takes on that like household duty of the, remembering the birthdays and sending the cards and nope that's not not my job this year I've got so many feelings about it but it's not my job yeah um, so the next question is about books. This is a question that comes up every season. And this is like, basic, I say this all the time. It's like self-torture because then all I have is like more books that I really want to read and there's not enough time to read them in, which is, of course, a significant first world problem. But um, can you share two or three books, any type of book, any genre that's either had a really big impact on you or that you reread or recommend most often? Um, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Ugh, me too, of course. Obviously. Yes. Harry Potter all the way. Um, I think it's got pretty much all of the life lessons you need right in there. Mm-hmm. So it's good. Um, and then the second one, I was hoping this question would still be in because I have the best book story ever. Okay, I'm ready. This one might, it might take up a couple extra minutes, but go for um, it. So a couple of years ago, my grandmother passed away and I uh, felt some loss and some uh, shame over the fact that I didn't connect with her more when she was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as in my weird morning feelings period, I got really into genealogy, um, and just started tracing my family tree. Like this was my second job. I spent so much time on this. Um, and there was this really big block around finding my, uh, my grandfather's 
brother, my dad's uncle or my dad's dad's brother. Um, because anytime I asked my dad about it, my dad just said like, no, Papa never talked about it. He, um, he, he said, he said his brother died in the war and I knew my grandfather wasn't old enough to join the army during the war. Um, so I always assumed it was an older brother. And then at one point my dad let it slip that he thought he remembered Papa saying something about his brother dying at sea. Um, so I was going crazy trying to find this brother. Um, and we had, uh, we had narrowed down, we've been working from the idea that maybe his name was name. His name was Michael because my dad's name was Michael, but like he, like he talked about his brother so little that he wasn't even sure what his name was. Um, and, uh, so I like bought my great grandparents marriage certificate because I was trying to find out, um, when he might've been born. I went looking through every record I could find of like British soldiers who died during world war II and couldn't find anything, went through all of the like passenger records I could find. Um, and when I got the marriage certificate, I realized that my grandfather had been born 14 months after his parents were married, which didn't leave room for an older brother. Interesting. Okay. And I remembered this book that I read when I was a kid called The Guests of War uh, by Kit Pearson. And in it, these there are British children being sent to Canada to be fostered during the war. And I remembered that the age cutoff for that was 13 which meant my grandfather would have been too old to be a war child in the program. And the final sailing of that was on a ship called the city of Bernares, which was torpedoed by the Nazis and 900 children died at sea. And my great uncle was one of them. Oh my gosh. I have chills. And I read about it when I was like, 12 years old. And I was just sitting there one day looking at these records and I was like, Oh my God. And I, I, I pulled up the passenger manifest and yeah, there he was. The guests of war, the guests of war by Kit Pearson. Yeah. Okay. That's, that is the most real book recommendation story that I've had in 13 seasons on the show. So yes, you, I win. Win, you win that round for sure. <laughs> um, also, I, I like that we went from Harry Potter to that. That's yeah, a little, a little dark. No, it's know. good. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> Whew, okay. Um, the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take related to what we've talked about? Um, you're all welcome to join Nice White Ladies. <laughs> and I will definitely put a link for that. Yes. <laughs> like, we're pretty friendly. You know, we're, it's, we're it's in the name. You're nice. It's in the name. We're, we're nice. We, you know, we like cookies and stuff. We also, we try to use some humor every once in a while to, you know, balance it out and yeah, come make friends. We're good people. So, um, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And if, if you want to take on my holiday challenge, I'm, I'm cool with that too. I can share that. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, I'm a, I have a website. Um, I have, I'm probably more like reachable on Twitter. Okay. Um, just, uh, I, I also have a Facebook page, but I forget to check the messages there. <laughs> so, okay. So what's your Twitter? 
<laughs> Twitter's at Aaron Brook. Okay. Um, E-R-Y-N-N-B-R-O-O-K. Uh, and if you do want to talk to me on Facebook, um, I, I don't like accept random friend requests unless I also see a message request from you because <laughs> I've been getting a lot of friend requests from profiles that don't look like real people. So. Yeah, sure. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I quit Facebook a couple years ago, but I hear you. Um, awesome. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Erin, thank you so much for your wonderful honesty and just for the conversation. Thank you for having me. This was great. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I absolutely couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-funded show. The show is made possible by amazing people like Gina. Hi, Gina. Hi. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Oh, I'm excited. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, that's a great question. Well, I guess two things. Um, I am obsessed with Airstreams. And I will own one one day, and I would love to live in one, but my husband's not there yet. So I would love to take a lot of vacations and airstreams. Uh, so just like the small life where you're traveling on the road. Yeah, yeah that travel. sounds amazing. My friend Melissa, she's been on the show. Her and her husband lived in an airstream for a while. I feel like that is also – that something like that would be for sure a dream of mine, and there's no scenario in the world that my husband would ever be on board. So I'm kind of like, okay, choose, choose your battles. I can go on long hikes, and that's <laughs> enough. That's fine. <laughs> I'm the same way, yeah. Uh, what's one place in your hometown where you live that you'd really recommend people check out if they ever travel there? Favorite restaurant, coffee shop, museum, bookstore, park, anything? Oh, um, well, we have really great coffee shops in Minneapolis. People always talk about the food scene here, but I try to eat vegan most of the time. And there are options, but all the hot restaurants are like also eating weird animal things. So I don't have any for that. But we've got really great coffee shops here, oddly enough, and bike trails and even like inner city kind of hiking. It's all flat. But those are the big things for me. That's what I use the most, too. Mm, I love it. What's one thing that you have had to let go of or stop doing this year in order to move forward? Oh, shit. That's such a loaded question. Uh, one of the things that I've been working on this year is, like, detaching so much of my ego and what I think other people are thinking of me and tying that, having that be such a part of the fabric of like the decisions I make. Mm. It sounds so crazy. And I know it sounds like the best goal in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I'm like, I started transcendental meditation in May and it has really helped me like really push me down that path to the point where I'm like making a huge career shift in this at the end of this year or so like this month. And it's been really eye opening. And a year ago, I would have been like, I could never stop doing what I'm doing. People are going to think I failed. And now I'm just like, dude, fuck them. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, I'm going to read this afternoon. Is someone going to look down on me because I have a poor work ethic? Yeah. I don't. Who cares? Fuck you. So I love it. I love it. Big shift for me. So that would be the big one is just like letting go of my ego or trying to. Mm, that's so good. We could have a whole other conversation about that. Um, 
What's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in life? Ooh. Oh, man. Uh, Maybe the biggest one for me is like a little over four years ago, I stopped drinking. And I just stopped like socially, you know, social norms. I was a normal drinker, probably even a lighter drinker at that point in my life. But to me, when I stopped drinking, it like, I used to battle like anxiety and depression. And while I still have like highs and lows, quitting drinking for me was a game changer in that. And then, and it just like really opened me up to do like more spiritual work and just be a better partner to my guy. And that is the, that was the biggest thing for me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't have ever imagined a life without alcohol. And I thought it would be like a smaller life, a more boring life. And it is like way richer, way more fun, way more loving, all of it. It's like, everything is like way more than I thought it would be, Mm -hmm. which that's the big one for me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, obviously I can relate to that so much. Uh, you and I were talking off air just about potential plans for, um, the Patreon community, you know, in the upcoming year. And I, I shared with you, I have this idea of doing sort of a series of roundtable conversations where it's a couple members of the community on, you know, a group call, group hangout, that kind of thing, all talking about the same subject and then shared with the whole community. And I feel like drinking is, would be a really good one to talk about. Yeah, dude, that is so in our culture. I mean, especially as women, it's just like, you know, you and I could probably talk about it for a while, but it's like, even the way it's positioned to women, it's like, this is your tool. And it's like, dude, it's keeping you down. Oh, preach. I love it. Um, last question of this little rapid fire segment. What's one thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? Ah, uh, this is like why I support your show. Um, like money, culture, racism, sexism, asking the hard questions, even if you like look kind of silly. Uh, overall, like that's it. But really for me at this point in my life, it's like, I'm in my mid thirties. And sometimes I look at people and I'm like, how do you afford that? How does your money work? You know? Mm-hmm. So oh my God. Yes. One, like I look around, I'm like, how do you afford that lifestyle? And I, you know, you never know credit cards, parents, rich aunt, who knows, but that's one of my things, like personally on a personal level, I, that's a question I have a lot. That would be another fun one to do a group conversation about. Oh my God, so good. Okay, so um, you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Well, like I said before, you you cover so many great topics that people just aren't diving into. Um, and I love that. And I love the format. I love how it's like two hours long. So you do get really deep and it's not about someone trying to position themselves to look great. So you like buy their book or whatever. Uh, so I love that. And personally, I like wish you were in Minneapolis cause I'd force you to be my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would be a hard sell on <laughs> there. Let's do it. <laughs> and so then I thought, why not just, you know, support you in what you do. Well, that's awesome. You're the best. Um, And I appreciate you being brave and joining me for this. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me. And it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. 
So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 